I run out to the truck and I never run. And I, I ran to the truck to get our cardiac arrest back. My hands were shaking so bad that I couldn't buckle my, my duty belt. Welcome to Medic Mindset. This is Ginger Locke. I'm a paramedic and EMS instructor who has long been intrigued with the minds of medics. This is a homegrown podcast where another medic and I sit down face-to-face with nothing but a digital recorder and plenty of time to sort through what makes them tick, what makes them amused, what makes them reflect, what makes them proud or even guilty. With minimal editing, I share the audio in hopes that you might learn something about medicine, about yourself, or simply be entertained for an hour. In this fourth episode, I continue to ask that the guests be anonymous. I want them to speak as freely as possible. And I say it with every episode, but this one really does feel like my favorite so far. I couldn't be happier to share this medic with you. She's happy, she's competent, she's real, and she willingly lets me traipse around in her brain for a bit. Listen as we jump right in. So when you started paramedic school, were you already working 911? I was. I worked for about a year before I started going to paramedic school. I wanted to get comfortable in my job before I added something else on because I had never worked any kind of EMS before. And so, you know, the operations, all that's pretty heavy. Right. Well, I'm but, excited to talk to you because not every medic I talk to has that experience yeah. of being a basic first. And I sh- I share that experience. Oh, first, I didn't, I didn't welcome you. Hi. Thank Hi. you. <laughs> yes. Welcome. Thank you. you. We just kind of (laughs) started. This is one of my favorite things to do in the whole world is talk to paramedics about their experience. My daughter this morning was asking me, if you could be anywhere in the world, mama, where would you be? And the first place I thought of was the Dominican Republic on the beach. (laughs) But second to that, it is sitting here talking to new medics about how it's been going out there. How's it been going? Good. Yeah. How many years have you been doing this? Three and a half. Three and a half. Yeah. Full time. Full time. All right, so you have a lot of experiences to pull upon. I was thinking about how to ask you this. Forgive me, I have a short story to tell. That's okay. My family and I went to Fort Lauderdale, and we are a water family. We love scuba diving. We're going there next week, actually. Fort Lauderdale? Yeah. It's yeah. beautiful. Beautiful. Our daughter, at the time, she had just turned six, and she's also a water baby, and she knows how to snorkel in the pool. So this was our first foray out into the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, well, we'll just do it from the shore. We didn't put on any fins, and that's where you're going to hear the story goes downhill. <laughs> so it was shallow. Yeah. We, we kind of worked our way out a ways because there were no fish. It was about 75 yards out. Finally saw a fish. So I just started kind of messing with the fish. Yeah. <laughs> this is the fish that attaches themselves to sharks. They're called remoras, but I didn't know what it was. So it wanted to attach to me. Remember, I don't know what this thing is. Yeah. I just know it keeps dive bombing me. <laughs> if you've seen the, the pictures of them attached to sharks, mm-hmm. you've seen that they they themselves look a little bit like a shark. <laughs> Here I am with my daughter. I'm trying to hide from her that I'm afraid that it's a little baby shark nipping yeah. at me. <laughs> and so we start going back to shore, but we don't have our fins on. So it takes forever to get back. When I finally made it to shore, I was certain I was going to have all these little like bite nit- marks. little bite marks all over me. I thought for sure I just wasn't feeling it from the adrenaline. <laughs> so where I'm going with the story is when I finally got to shore and I sat down, I was having a big old epi dump. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was raw fear that I hadn't felt in a long time because I've been out of the field for yeah. a long time. Have you felt raw fear before like that yeah um not as much anymore i think that my body is more used to that epi dump that we get i remember 
when I was training, when I first got hired and I was, the tones dropped and I was trying to put on my belt and my hands were shaking so bad that I couldn't buckle my, my duty belt together. My training captain's partners walked by and started laughing. He's like, that'll go away in about a year. (laughs) And sure enough, you know, it did. And I find only on certain types of calls, I get a little bit, a little bit stressed and feel that epi dump. And it's usually not with the patient themselves, but if there's any kind of family member or something yeah and I feel really flustered then other than that I think that I'm just so used to it now it doesn't I don't notice it as much if that makes sense right it does make sense yeah don't miss those days at all (laughs) but but it is temporary and I don't know exactly why that is physiologically but it is temporary Mm -hmm. I guess our bodies they either release less epi or we are blunted to the impacts of the epi yeah do you notice any at all when the tones go off any response that you still have Mm mm-hmm a little bit. Um, I have a story to tell too. Uh-huh. Uh, we, uh, when we got hired, I don't know if they took it out of the budget or whatever, but we didn't get to do our swift water training at the time. Mm-hmm. And so about a year and a half later, said, okay, now we have the budget. You're going to come do the swift water training with the brand new cadets. Mm-hmm. We were doing our swift water. We were out there all day. They gave us a lunch break. We sat down to eat our lunch and they decided to call us back out to the water real quick to, mm-hmm. you know, think you know just get a little bit of motivation strike a little bit of fury because the unexpected kind of thing so they blew the whistle and all the new cadets were running all scared and all the rest of us that had been there for like here like because we're so used to the tones dropping when we're eating or right you know you're just more frustrated yeah it was just funny to see that different physiological response when Mm -hmm. they like jumped up and ran over there and we're like like, let me see how many more bites (laughs) i can get before i run back over there completely if I had to send you on a call today with your regular partner, mm-hmm. I had to send you guys to the, the call that's going to challenge you. Is there anything left that would still challenge you? I mean, I know everyone says PD calls and PD calls are always stressful because it's a little person and their family is all stressed and the doses are different. But for me, like we have these reference cards that we, you know, look up the medication and it says, you know, the weight by color. Mm-hmm. And that really helps me. To me... The calls where I get most flustered is where family is angry at you or doesn't understand why you're doing what you're doing. And like I said, it's not the patient that flusters me the most. It's the family or the bystanders that are kind of questioning how you do things. And when there's nothing that you can do when you're trying to explain that to family, that you know, that's hard too. Mm -hmm. And that's where I find that I still get the most stressed out, I think. Do you mean there's nothing left to do like in a dying or dead patient? Yeah. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And, or, you know, when just situations happen that no one could have prevented and questioning why something happened, I mean, this is the, the worst day of their lives, mm-hmm. you know. I One morning, it was a priority one traffic accident, which is the highest priority for us. It usually means someone's unconscious, they're not breathing, or they're dead. But you know how bystanders are when they call 911. Sometimes what you get on the call text is not always accurate. On the way there, they said in the call text that there was a nurse performing CPR. So I had a good idea that this is probably going to be a pretty bad car accident. We got there. We had one patient that was dead, and we had several other patients. And I was trying to you know, cut this girl's seatbelt off in the back, and she's, she's screaming at the top of her lungs. She has a head injury, and so that's difficult, trying to get someone that's yeah. not really comprehending what's going on out of a car having to call for backup i noticed this gentleman over there walking around with the kid and somebody says he's a patient too he was in the car and i had no idea this guy's a patient because he's walking around we ended up transporting the little kiddo and him he he didn't want to be a patient but we told him he should get checked out mm-hmm. and so the whole way to the hospital i had to 
I was up front with him because I was driving and my partner was in the back. And just watching him process that his wife was dead, that was really hard for me. That was the first call that I cried on. When did you cry? Um, After we got to the hospital, I kind of went off to a little side room and uh, my partner came in there because I think that he knew that that was a hard call for me and he's mm-hmm. been, he had been doing that for a long this for a long time and he's like it's okay you need to process it don't hold it in because you need to you need to like not bottle it up or it's going to come back later and um, yeah that was just so hard because what do you what do you say to that person there's nothing they really can say Mm-mm. because they're not well they're not going to hear you first of all because they're going a million miles an hour in their head. Was he like yeah. conversing with you? Um, a little bit. Well, he was just kept saying, you know, she's dead, she's dead, <sighs> and watching him feel that responsibility of, you know, his. And then his kids were going to different hospitals, you mm-hmm. know, because of their ages, and he was trying to call family and just mm-hmm. oh, that was, yeah. And, and I was trying to tell him, you know, I'm so sorry. There's nothing else that you really, really can say. Yeah. What do you do in the days weeks months following that um i talked about it to well we had a commander come over because i think my partner knew that i was having a little bit of a rough time with the call so she came over and she was on the call too and kind of just talked about you know talked about the call and um you know said the same thing you gotta talk about it you can't bottle it up because you know then you know then you're gonna worry about it later if you could have done something different um i think i did have a few bad dreams like that one of our coworkers was in a car accident pretty shortly after. But after that, I don't think I felt too stressed. I just felt, I didn't feel guilty, but I just felt bad about the whole situation. Cause even if we would have been there right after it happened, there was nothing that could have been done for that mm-hmm. patient, you know? And I think that helps me able to differentiate feeling responsible versus, you know, there's nothing that, that could have been done. And even if you were there right when it happened. Right. Um, and so intellectually, you know, there's nothing we could do, but you still had to go through that trauma with the people. You had to experience yeah. it right along with them. And I'd venture to say it's even harder for you not being the lead medic taking care of somebody who was sick. Yeah. Because you, your brain wasn't occupied with your own tasks. That's your very bra- true. Your brain was just, it On just it. had data coming in instead of data going out. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, I think that if I would have been actually working on the patient, I could have separated myself a little bit. I didn't think about that. Like, sometimes being involved in patient care helps to kind of turn things off for a little bit until after the call. Yeah, they call it professional de- detachment. Yeah. You're just detached enough so you can function. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't need that if you were driving. Yeah. That's intense. If you could go back in time and give advice to yourself as you started paramedic school, is there any advice you would give yourself? Hmm. That's a hard question for me because I didn't have such an abrupt, like, I'm not working. I went through school. Now I'm working. I kind of did it all together. But I watched my classmates have the experience of not knowing how to talk to people. And then, you know, that that's the hardest thing, I think, going through paramedic school is learning how to ask the questions. And, Hmm. you know, the skills come with repetition, but, you know, formatting how you ask things and what order you ask things and being comfortable asking those questions I saw was the hardest part got to put yourself out there and I remember when I first came to work I was very shy I like I know some people say I tell people that now and they don't believe me and I was like no I was very very shy I didn't know I remember watching my 
training captain asks questions and say, I'm never going to know how to do that. I'm never going to know how to ask what those questions and how they know what's going on. I have no idea what's going on. And it's just funny to look back and see the difference now. And I think that for the longest time, you think that you're not ever going to be, you know, a seasoned medic. Mm -hmm. It's hard to have that perspective when you're new. Just be patient and keep working because it'll come. I look back and they send me basic students now. And I remember being there and thinking, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. And I'm scared to ask questions. And I'm so ask as many questions as you can, because I'd much rather have a student that asks me questions and sits back and you know, or is arrogant, you know, mm-hmm. pretends they know what's going on when they don't. That makes me have a couple of questions. The first one I had was, can you remember, and it's probably asking a lot of you to try to remember, when you got, when you switched to feeling more comfortable, when mm-hmm. you settled in, what year that happened or month? Oh, man. I remember at first I was having a really difficult time because I wasn't, um, like I would say, what do you think of, like what do you think about this? Or I would always ask questions instead of saying what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And my FTO said, I want you to tell me what you want me to do. Be confident in your answer. Be confident in your treatment plan. After I had that conversation with him, it took a while to have that conversation, probably several weeks. It's like, stop asking me if this is okay. Tell me what you want to do and why. So I felt like I kind of had a little bit of a switch there. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really feel comfortable until probably nine months to a year after I started. Yeah. The second follow-up question I had was about students. I'm hoping the listeners, a lot of listeners for this, will be students somewhere in their their uh, progress to becoming a paramedic. I can't decide if I want to ask the question in a negative way or a positive <laughs> way. The negative question would be, what do students do that bugs the crap out of you? And mm-hmm. then the positive question would be, if the ideal student walked in the door today, what are they doing that makes them palatable or enjoyable to be around we've had a few bad ones that just um they're cocky and you know we had one that wore sunglasses in the ambulance i was like you cannot wear sun like you have patient yes yes and you know just being respectful and so i know as paramedics sometimes we run those calls and like like they're just drunk or you know like you get a little bit burnt out sometimes Mm -hmm. being a paramedic for a long time or i think that sometimes that's just kind of how you deal with stuff is saying oh my god not this again or not this patient again and you can't really do that as a student I don't feel like you have enough experience there and so when we have students I feel like that's one of the things that does bug us when they kind of try to get get in there and act the same way I'm like no you gotta right you gotta see those patients first before you can say oh this is nothing Mm -hmm. like like, oh, but this is this. Well, it could be, but it could also be these things, too. And in the back of our mind, we're thinking that, too, even if we don't say it and even if we're kind of complaining about sure. running this patient for the third time today mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. It always has to be there just in case. It always has, you know, they could always be sick. And- right. And that is the difference between a seasoned medic and a brand new student is the seasoned medic may be mouthing off uh-huh. to vent a little with yeah. your partner. But both of you are thinking. We feel this way, and we have to make sure there's no pathophysiological thing going on today. Yeah. People that are brand new students or haven't been on the truck, they hear medics like talking like that, and they don't, they haven't been on the truck long enough to know that sometimes that's just how we cope with our day is, right. you know, we might be on our 10th call a day and we're exhausted, and mm-hmm. we still run the call the same when we get there, and we still check everything 
just in case. Actually, I've been meaning to talk to you about this. Um, <laughs> cool. You know, every once in a while you get a reality check as a paramedic. We were going to this call. We were hungry. We'd been out all day. And we get called to a priority one respiratory for like a 20-year-old. We get there and um, one of the fire guys meets us out at the ambulance to help us get our equipment. Says, yeah, you know, the patient had um, an anxiety attack Friday. He thinks that's what's going on again today. He's never really had one before this weekend, but he's been stressed. So we walk in, and the patient's blue, unconscious, in the bathroom, and they say he just had a seizure. We don't think he was breathing. Immediately, like, I look at the patient, and you know how they teach us sick, not sick. I was mm-hmm. like, he is sick. Yeah. <clears throat> I run out to the truck, and I never run. And I, I ran to the truck to get our cardiac arrest back. We ended up working this patient, and that was a huge reality check for me. And I think I felt guilty about that. Because, you know, I've gone to this call thinking there's going to be anxiety, you know, it's gonna, we're going to take this patient to the hospital, it's going to be totally cool. And then you walk in and the patient's really sick. And sometimes I think you do get a little burnt out and you do think that it's something minor when the patient could have something very serious going on. I think that his issue was so big that I don't think that nothing that we would have done would have helped. But... Yeah, uh, this is it was rough. What do you make of all that? Uh, um, I don't know. I had to talk about it a lot, you know, to people because I think that I was just feeling so guilty. Not that we we didn't treat the patient appropriately. As soon as I walked in, I knew he was sick. But right. So, what do you make of the of the guilt that you felt? Um, I think that you know. Oh man to reassure you yeah um all that you're experiencing is a cognitive bias so for the last 100 times you've gone on a shortness of breath for yeah. a 20 something yeah it's been something that's not been life-threatening yeah your brain has um has what's called a recency bias it's been you know just relaxed yeah what's the message to the medic that that hasn't happened to yet. Just because you've had the not sick patient a hundred times doesn't mean that you're not going to have the sick patient that one time that day, and you need to be ready for that patient. And like I said, if and and he was talking to fire when they got there, and he and he looked like he was in distress, but he was talking to them when they got there, and it's not like when I got there, I wouldn't have done the same things like oxygen saturation, entitled all those things. I still would have done those things, but it just sometimes patients take you by surprise, and yeah, for sure, I. I remember a cardiac arrest I went to that it was toned as a fall. Yeah. Because people do fall. Yep. Yep. As they're dying. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you know what? People get really anxious before they die too. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's a, that's a huge, um, like anxiety that, that was, you know, they, they teach us, you know, it's a diagnosis of, of ex- exclusion and we can't diagnose anxiety. But I think subconsciously we still do a lot of the time, mm-hmm. especially for people that have a history or whatnot. It's easier to say, okay, that's probably what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I definitely will. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know if we, we, we got there. Oxygen saturation would have been low, I'm assuming so, because I think he had a massive PE. But yeah, it sounds like it. Anxiety is a diagnosis of exclusion, but it's still a diagnosis. Yeah. So the diagnosis of exclusion just means you have to check to make sure it's not these life. And this is for the listener, yeah. not for you. Yes. You, you know these things. Yes. Um, you have to make sure that it's not a life-threatening thing causing the anxiety first. Mm-hmm. And then as you start checking those off, then you start thinking, all right, well, maybe it is the anxiety you've had mm-hmm. for the last 10 years. 
Did you walk slowly to that call? Or did you, do you, do you walk the same speed to every call? Most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because, you know, you get on calls and family or friends are like, come on, come on, come on. I'm like, well, we have to get our stuff first. Like we're coming. And most of the time I, I don't walk slow, but I never, I never run. And that was the first time that I think that I've run back to the truck to get Mm -hmm. equipment. Cause I, you know, usually when you're going to call, you can kind of gauge what stuff you need to bring in and that just, you know, I wouldn't have thought to bring the cardiac arrest bag and I needed that bag. So. So you triage when and when not to take the cardiac arrest bag, just based on judgment from call text. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Um, usually, you know, if the patient's older, you know, if it would have been a respiratory for an 80-year-old, I probably would have grabbed that bag and grabbed mm-hmm. the CPAP bag, that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. um, and our, our primary has oxygen and, you know, in our, there's all the basic stuff that you would think that you would need for a mid-20s person. But Right. Hmm. I'm trying to ascertain where the guilt came Mm -hmm. from i saw a patient with anxiety also recently on a rotation Mm -hmm. and the view from the door Mm -hmm. i thought was just pure anxiety like it was just uh anxiety alone that's actually why i posted that thing on facebook about anxiety being a diagnosis of exclusion because i fell into my own Mm -hmm. mental shortcoming yeah so i saw the view from the door and you could just you know you can see psych yeah from far away Mm -hmm. i thought that looks like pure psych. Yeah. And the the trap that I fell into is I forgot that people can have underlying psych and something else going yes. on. <laughs> yes. So um, maybe that is where the guilt falls in is because even if you're not treating a patient any differently or saying things out loud in your own mind, you're like kind of thinking things that you, re- I guess you regret thinking later on if it does turn out to be something more serious. Right. Anyways, about your patient. Yeah, well, it's just interesting that anxiety can is a symptom. Yeah. It's a diagnosis, and it can be someone's baseline. So it can be, mm-hmm. it can come into your call in so many ways. Yeah. Um, or people that have zero anxiety normally, but they're having, you know, a medical complaint that has an, an emergency component, so they get it scared. Anxious, yeah. They get anxious about that. I just find it all really intriguing, in particular, our the mental trap that we get into about it. Mm-hmm. It bugged me because yeah. I'd pigeonholed her. Mm-hmm. So I asked you what students do that bugs you. Did I ask you what they can do to look sharp? Hmm. I really like when they ask a lot of questions. I think sometimes people think by asking questions you don't know something, but I would rather you ask and find out than sitting there and wondering what's going on. What my partner and I like to do on the way to calls is we'll have the headsets on and read the call text to them and say, you know, this patient has respiratory distress. What are what do you think could be going on? Mm-hmm. And have them start thinking before the call. Um, okay, well, if they have respiratory distress, what kind of things do we need to do for this patient? Do we need to get oxygen saturation and tidal, those kinds of things? And that way, when they get there and there's that sensory overload and they haven't been on a scene like that before, we've already talked about what needs to happen before yeah. we get there. And then after the call, we try to always ask, you know, do you have any questions that we couldn't answer at the time? And for me, even still, like if I go on a call and I can't remember something, I try to look it up after the call to kind of mm-hmm. keep myself fresh. I like to see when students do that, too. Helping out around the station's nice, too. Not a lot of students do that, but it's, it's a small thing that helps a lot, too, you know, and kind of builds that rapport with the medics mm-hmm. that you're with going through the bags just taking that initiative to see that you're interested in where things are at and what's going on and if you don't know how to use something ask we're more than happy to show you how something works instead of like you know getting on a call and using up five uh five land sets and then we don't have any more in the bag i had a classmate that 
didn't know how to use something and asked her preceptor and they were, well, this is not the time to ask questions. Yes, it absolutely is the time to ask questions. And if I can't answer, sometimes if the patient's really sick, I'll say, well, I'll answer after the call. Don't Mm -hmm. forget your question. We'll answer it later. Right. The nurses that we work with at the hospitals, at the ER, the Mm -hmm. ones that are the most comfortable with themselves Mm -hmm. are comfortable with the students. Yeah. And the ones that are brand new that aren't settled into their own rhythm, they're the ones saying, this is not the time to ask questions. Yeah. So I try to keep stu- I try to rem- help students remember that the provider that they're with may be going through their own stress, mm-hmm. that they're not managing well, and their behavior may have, may have nothing to do with them. That's an important thing to remember. Don't let anything they do offend you. And if they're if they're being rude or offensive, you need to let your priest, your teacher know, mm-hmm. your school know. Uh, if you went to work tomorrow, mm-hmm. would you choose to have a student there or not a student there? Mm-hmm. Well. We're out in the county, so, I mean, sometimes it's a little awkward when we don't run any calls, and, like, I think that a student feels forced to, like, make conversation, which I don't mind making conversation, but, you know, I think that it's a little awkward when you are slow because they don't know how much to talk to you or how much to study kind of thing. But I love having students when we're in town. It's sometimes when you have a super busy shift, it can be exhausting teaching sometimes, and so as a student, remember that, too. You know, if your medics run six calls in a row, they might be a little tired and they mm-hmm. might just want to eat and relax and not, you know, veg out for a little bit. Yeah. And give them that break. Having a student, if you do it well, yeah, it majorly adds to your workload. It does, yeah. I mean, just just keeping them safe. Mm-hmm. You always have to watch where they're at. Right. And you have to push them enough but not let them drown. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking of all these audiences. So you've got the patient, mm-hmm. you've got the family, you've got your partner, mm-hmm. sometimes a TO that might be training you. Sometimes you have a student. Sometimes you have the media. Sometimes you have Fire. an arena full of people. You have firefighters. Police. You have police. Yeah. So I think medics have to have tremendous emotional intelligence and social intelligence. And I don't know what question I want to ask related to that other than how do you keep yourself focused on the patient when you have all these audiences that you're trying, I don't want to say appeal to, but yeah. you're trying to keep everybody a little happy. Yeah. Um, that could be hard too, because everyone also has their own egos and they think that what they're doing is the most important thing or, you know, the media wants to get their story or police run calls differently than EMS do. They have a different focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be hard managing all those people and it, on a medical scene. That's, that's your call. That's your job. That was really hard for me to learn feeling like I was in charge this you know, being new, it's hard to feel like you're in charge and feel like you know what's going on and that you're capable and qualified to be in charge of six seven other people that are there your main focus is your patient but you also have to have really good situational awareness you know that was something that was new to me too noticing things in the house and looking now i can go into anybody's house and pick up if they're sick or what kind of medical conditions they potentially have but you know things that are lying around if there's a gun over here or something just doesn't seem quite right and i never had that kind of situational awareness before that gut instinct that grows as you become a medic i've learned to really trust my gut instinct on things Mm because i've almost been burned a few times and noticing if someone has a weapon or Mm -hmm. yeah i noticed that my senses grew first vision was Mm -hmm. narrow very little hearing yeah and i remember being about a year in when i finally could start smelling the environment and and hearing better i started smelling you know the faint marijuana or mm-hmm. that they had just cooked breakfast an hour ago. Mm-hmm. The, the senses kind of came one at a time. 
That's interesting because I never would have thought of that either, but I think that it was the same way for me. And I remember driving to a call and I got all up on the steering wheel and I had, couldn't have the radio on. My training captain said, you know, eventually you'll be able to be like, oh, I ran a call over there last week or, you know, like talking about whatever about your day. And I don't think a lot of people realize that sensory overload when they're new until they're actually there and they're like, oh God, like, how do you... How do you know what's going on? I'm trying to talk to patient and listen to what my partner's saying over here. I'm trying to look at what meds they have out. Being able to process that all at once versus not noticing it at all when I first got there. Right. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Like my captain's be like, oh, did you notice that they had 20 medication bottles on the table? Nope. I didn't see that at all. I was so focused on getting a blood pressure on this patient that I didn't notice anything. And now I notice pretty much everything in somebody's house. Mm Mm-hmm. And I can listen to two people at once, and it's funny how your senses grow, or sense of smell. And And to tell someone how it happens, I think the only answer is repetition. Mm -hmm. I don't know any other solution. Yeah. Are there any call types that you think you haven't had yet? Oh, man. (laughs) We're pretty busy. (laughs) Well, and you've been doing it for a while, too. Yeah. I haven't delivered a baby yet. There you go. There's Uh one. Yeah. I delivered a baby almost immediately when I first started did working you? in the field. But we did terribly, but it still was fine. <laughs> like they just come out. <laughs> Got a catch and that's it. We, we barely caught. <laughs> I really want to. I think that that'd be a beautiful thing mm-hmm. to do. Yeah. I can't wait for that call. Yeah, it could, you could go your whole career, at least in your current environment in an urban setting, and never have that experience. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think if there's any good ones. We had a... Uh, Got to cardiovert somebody one time. That was really cool to watch them because initially they were stable. And they, um, you know, I'm thinking through my head. I was actually thinking I was just finished with cardiology when we had this patient. And they were stable. You know, her vital signs were stable. And then she started to become pale, cool, diaphoretic, blood pressure 70 over something. And it's just, it was interesting to watch that shift of like, you know, you go through scenarios and, you're, oh, your patient's stable. Your patient's unstable. But to actually watch that happen and like actually see it happen on a real patient was very interesting. You can say stable, unstable, but to actually like feel them and feel how cold they are and f- watch them get confused. We ended up cardioverting her and she was immediately fine afterwards. And yeah. it was just really cool to watch too, to see that immediate response. What was the rhythm? Uh, SVT. She had said that she thought she had to be shocked before. And so we're like, <sighs> she couldn't remember. She couldn't remember for sure. Okay. When she became unstable, my partner's like, I'm really sorry. I'm going to have to shock you. And so when we did it, she's like, that is not what they did last time. <laughs> so sorry. I was like, well, do you feel better? She's like, yeah. That's a good okay. story. <laughs> do you think there's a certain personality type that makes for a good medic? Hmm. I think a lot of people go into this job not, you know, you hear, you're going to save lives all the time. You're not going to do that. Yeah. And I think that if you go into this job with that unrealistic expectation, those are the people that I find get out burnt out the fastest. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the most rewarding calls have been, you know, just holding patients' hand and then telling you thank you, like, you know, I was thinking of killing myself and just being able to talk to somebody about it or, you know, someone that doesn't have food or, you know, way to get their medications and you can, you can connect them with the right people. That's really satisfying, too. And I think that people that want to help and want to take that extra mile that's a very good personality to have people that don't get angry easily (laughs) those people that like let everything get to them and you know not only just kind of gripe about being busy but really are angry about running calls or you can't go in 
thinking you're only going to run sick people all the time because that's not going to happen. I wanted to talk more about what you were talking about earlier about the venting. Mm -hmm. You and your partner know when we walk in the door, we're going to be the best medics that we are for everybody, Mm -hmm. even though we just... Yeah. Did some great. I think like in the in the cab is your you know, your space with your partner and you spend a lot of time with that partner throughout the week and I think that that's just your space to kind of they say that medics have an odd sense of humor and I think it's cuz of what we're exposed to all the time, you know. We mm-hmm. see really bad stuff and so I don't know. I think that's part of why we why we vent and sounds like we're complaining. I wouldn't do any other job even if you hear me complaining. I wouldn't do anything else. Have you ever been I know the answer to this one. Yeah. I was going to ask, have you ever been physically afraid of a patient? Yeah. What'd you do when you realized you were afraid? Usually, um, I like to have friends there, like so fire or police if we can. Um, and it's tough, especially with everything going on nowadays, you know, with the police and stuff. And it, you always have to be aware, like you said, how you look to the public, but you always have to be conscious of your own safety too. And you can't, you can't have a patient that's trying to fight you in the back of your ambulance not tied down or not chemically restrained. One in particular, we got dispatched to some unknown in the ba- like a bathroom at a hotel, and it said unresponsive. It was just us. There was no police and no fire signed, which is kind of interesting because I think that they just didn't know what the call was yet. And they, because they said the patient, um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, they said he wasn't answering the door. When we got there, the front lobby staff said, "Oh yeah, every time we try to open the door, he." doesn't let us open the door. I said, well, that's a completely different thing than not, not answering the door. Like him actively trying not to let you in. That's an issue. Um, did you just get lucky that you talked to the, yeah, the yeah. front office people? Yeah. We got real lucky. Cause you could have missed them mm-hmm. and gone straight to the door. Yep. Okay. We were kind of talking about this pretty close to the bathroom. And I think that he heard the patient heard. And so he comes out and he, you know, red eyed looks like he's obviously been doing something in the bathroom. He starts to like walk out of the lobby and I'm not going to, I'm not going to instigate because we don't have any backup there yet. And then he goes to scratch his stomach and I see something in his waistband mm-hmm. and I can't tell if it's a knife, if it's a gun, I can't tell. And so I looked at my partner and said, he has something in his waistband and she's like, okay, we're going to, we're going to back up until you know, PD gets there. And just other times when we've had to you know, tie patients down and they don't know what's going on because, you know, they've, they're they either a psych or they've taken some kind of drugs and they're not in their right mind. And just them calling you names and them yeah. trying to bite you and kick you, that was new for me too. And that looks bad to the public a lot of the time because they don't have the whole story of, you know, this patient just tried to hang herself or they just did a whole bunch of drugs and I can't have them in the back with me, you know. And I think a lot of times hospitals... Like, the nurses at the hospitals don't understand either. I really wish, like, we have to do ER rotations. I really wish that they had to do some rotations on the ambulance when they were going through school. Because right. I think that there's a little bit of a lack of knowledge of what we do as well. Mm-hmm. Even though we work with them a lot, I think they, they still don't understand. Sure. Along those lines, when we used to hand off patients to aeromedical crews, mm-hmm. they have an even lower threshold for who they're going to chemically restrain. Because... You, oh, in the air? In a helicopter? Yeah. You can't pull over. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, I've heard people getting hit in the head with oxygen tanks. I had a friend look down for two seconds, put her seatbelt on, the patient's punching her in the face. And mm-hmm. peop- the public doesn't realize stuff like that happens no. to us often. If you were a paramedic teacher, what, what would be your content area? What would Ooh. you want to teach? Mm-hmm. I used to, I think this is a lot of people's viewpoint. When you first get into emergency medicine, you're all about the trauma, which I like trauma. But to me, it's fun to figure out what's going on, like more of the medical side. Trauma's pretty straightforward when you find out 
what the issue is. Like when you physically feel on someone and you can find, feel this is broken or this, you know, this is bruised. Medical can be a little bit more complicated and they have 20 different conditions yeah. and you're trying to figure out what's going on today. Do you have a utility belt? I do. I think I'm going to move to the Boston belt like the firefighters have over the shoulder. Yeah. What do you think will be better about that? Not having all that weight on your hips, like trying to put your seatbelt on and stuff with mm-hmm. all that stuff on your hips. And I think it kind of like weighs you down a little bit more, mm-hmm. kind of forced me to carry a little bit less stuff. And um, what kind of boots do you wear? Oh, I think they're 5'11". They're steel toe, which we don't have to have anymore. I don't know whether I want to move back or not. And I, I like being able to kick stuff and not it not hurt or like if something steps on me, it doesn't hurt. But mm-hmm. they are heavier. They're mm-hmm. like... When I first moved to them, I was having a really hard time because they were so heavy. But now I'm, I'm used to the weight, so I can't decide if I want to move back or not. Yeah. I started my career with steel toe, and then I went to not steel toe. And it's more comfortable without them. Yeah. Just around the station or just even walking, you get more flexibility without them. So when I asked for newish medics to share their experiences, what mm-hmm. did you think I would ask? I figured that you would ask questions like how you're adjusting to be a med- to being a medic, and that's why I didn't know if I was a good candidate because I kind of in this weird like I've been an EMT and been out in a busy nine one one system. Yeah, but I just got my paramedic. You know, like uh-huh. I'm kind of. But you already went through the adjustment of working nine one one shift work. I think that's a lot of the challenge. I mean, mm-hmm. being the lead medic on a call is hard. It's its own beast. But a lot of the challenge is the sleepless nights and mm-hmm. odd schedule. Do you feel like you're adjusted to that? I think so. Um, I mean, yeah, it was really hard when I first did my ride out. So I was like, man, 12-hour shift is so long. And I don't know if when you sleep at station, you sleep as well as you sleep at home. No, you do not. Yeah. I know you do. Yeah. And so even though you might get some sleep at station, it's not the same as sleeping in your own bed. Because you're always kind of, I think your body's always kind of prepared to wake up and go Mm -hmm. to that call. One of my students just did her first 24-hour rotation on a truck. She said it wiped her out. Mm-hmm. They were up some during the night, but they also slept some. Yeah. She didn't like it. She was like, I'm not sure. Like, this really mm-hmm. wiped me. And I told her that people adjust. Yeah. I yeah. think we do. I And I think that not only is it a different work and sleep pattern that you're used to, but you're also learning. So that's another increased stress mm-hmm. that also contributes to tiring you out. And Good point. You're going through school and yeah. like... All those things together, I think, really, really wipe you out. Yeah, because she was at a station for 24 hours as a visitor, as a guest. Yeah. It wasn't her home. And you guys make it into your little home away mm-hmm. from home. Yeah. That really helps, too, I think, you know, mm-hmm. working with the same crews and the same, you know, same area kind of thing. And right. Being able to have your own bedding and, you mm-hmm. know, have your own stuff there at station helps a lot. Yeah. But I remember when I was going through my... Uh, academy when I first got hired we went from like 6 30 to 4 30 so it wasn't 24 hours it wasn't even 12 but it was exhausting Mm -hmm. because I was I was a night owl in college and so I had to completely flip my schedule to days Mm -hmm. and then just learning every day and having that stress of passing tests and you know passing scenarios and then meeting new people and impressing you know impressing who you're working for and I was exhausted. I I never drank coffee, and I started to drink coffee in the academy, and it was terrible. And I just like chugged it down because I was I was like so afraid of falling asleep in front of my chief or a, co- a commander. Mm-hmm. I was so tired because you sit in class and you're like, right. If you had a kid and they wanted to become a paramedic, mm-hmm. would you say, yeah, go do that? I would. I I love what I do. What do you do for fun? Mm, I'm getting into photography. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So, what are you going to take pictures of? 
Um, well, actually, I have a friend that just asked me to photograph her labor and delivery. So she's she's comfortable with that. I was like, I've never done one before, but if you're comfortable. Is the hospital cool with that? Yeah. They are. They can't, you can't like direct, but like from <laughs> from the side yeah. or like, you know, nursing is fine too or interesting excited but also nervous well that's a hard first one (laughs) yeah well i've done photo shoots for friends and stuff okay i just made my own website actually awesome yeah i'm about to do some like fall photo sessions for people like just photos out in the leaves what does that mean (laughs) i'm gonna buy like some pumpkins and have an old bike and like lantern and like do a little cute little setup and do some little mini photo sessions for people that so it's just something relaxing to do Mm. because I like to edit photos, and so I take the photos, and then when I go to work, I can edit them in my downtime, and yeah. it's really rewarding to like be able to give a couple or a family nice photos for them to have, and mm-hmm. it's cool to have them display your work. My mom and grandpa were both really into photography, so kind of, I guess. Are, are you using in. a digital camera, I assume? Yeah, I have like a really nice uh, camera that I got for Christmas a few years ago, and I haven't had a whole lot of um, chance to really like learn it a whole lot while being in school mm-hmm. but now that i'm done i really would like to get more into it and learn a whole lot more i've got a few different lenses and that kind of thing and, yeah. yeah it's good to have a creative outlet like that mm-hmm. I've, that's what this this audio is for me is mm-hmm. i don't i didn't know anything about like how to capture audio yeah. or any of it editing the th- episodes or anything like that yeah. so it's been really fun yeah yeah because here's what I love about it. This is so dorky. <laughs> but after everybody goes to sleep in my house, mm-hmm. I'll listen to this again and I'll mm-hmm. giggle and I'll it'll keep me company yeah. at like one in the morning. <laughs> so um, thanks for indulging me in my little creative project yeah. here. I mean, not a lot of people do what we do. And I think it's mm-hmm. it'll be cool to have that out there so other people can relate to it. Yeah, I've gotten some feedback from people. So I've shared it with a few close friends, mm-hmm. uh, episode one, and... Their feedback, they're not medical people, was that it's heavy in the medical jargon, but I'm okay with that. Yeah. Um, because the, the people I'm hoping will listen are paramedic students or yeah. other paramedics. Um, but it did occur to me that spouses or family members of the medics might want to listen just to understand their world a little yeah. more. So I'm sorting out how much of the jargon I want to mm-hmm. explain and how much I just leave it alone. Yeah. But I'm sorting that out. Who's the audience, basically? Yeah. Even if their loved one talks about their day, they don't really, I don't think their family member really goes into a whole lot of detail in order to spare them that emotional trauma or mm-hmm. like the stress and, you know, tell me I had a, had a good day or had a bad day. Right. Kind of thing. Yeah. And hearing them talk to someone else about it might right. be different and like right. a different point of view for them to listen to them speaking to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And in your case, they could hear that you're having a sense of humor about it too. Yeah. Like you're not just at work. Yeah, having a hard time that that you're doing well despite yeah. the challenging nature of it. Uh, it's just I like the chaos. I like figuring out what's going on and that's and working with what you have there and right. the people that you have there. And sometimes you don't have everybody there. It's right. just you and your partner. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, people will start to learn more of what we do since we're still a relatively new profession. Mm-hmm. It's uh. so fun talking to you. Like I said, this is my second favorite place to be. Thanks for indulging me. Yeah. I know it's a trek over to the house and. We should hang out. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. I, I got to come up with an ending for these things. They literally <laughs> just trail off. I'm like, bye. <laughs> what do I, what do I, I don't say? know. I have no idea. And that's a wrap. Hey, guys, real quick before you go. 
There's a bit of audio I separated out from the body of the podcast because it's directed at paramedic students in particular. She offers a little pep talk and some tips for surviving the marathon of paramedic school. Here it is. If you could go back to your paramedic school, mm-hmm. and, and I, this is a big question, if you could go back, is there anything you would tweak about it? I think that, like you said earlier, I have a pretty interesting perspective working while I'm going through school. So I found myself getting a little frustrated with things that I didn't necessarily use a lot. Maybe they're still valuable, but I didn't feel like they were useful to me in a a loud ambulance, you know, the percussion and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. I can see how that would be useful in a hospital setting, but not where I was. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I found myself getting a little frustrated on those things. Um, Let me comment on that. So you're saying it's useful in a hospital setting. But in fact, in a hospital, they Uh even use it less. Really? Sure, because you think of percussion and advanced physical exam techniques aren't as needed because they have imaging. So they can do Mm -hmm. x-rays and ultrasound. And I think where those more advanced physical exam techniques come into play would be austere environments. So if you're out on the oil rig and you're the, you know what I mean? Yeah. You're the paramedic out there and you've got to make the determination, do I send this person to the hospital Long transports, things like that. So maybe it depends on the type of paramedic and like roller or mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. would make more sense. If a paramedic student were listening to this, any advice for them? Oh, I know that's broad. Yeah, it was tough. Like going to school and working full time was really tough. Like just the time management aspect, and you feel like you're not going to have enough time to study and work and go to class and do all those things. And it it's hard, but if you really want it, you can do it. And it's going to be worth it when you're done. Like, it's such a nice relief to be done. And being able to help people and take care of people, that's a really rewarding, too. So if it's something that you want to do, get through it. It's, it sucks for two years, but... Right, it does suck. Can you remember how you did it? If there's any secrets, like, I kept my calendar on my phone, or I had a really supportive boyfriend, or I prepped my meals on Sundays, or... yeah. Any tricks that you can pass on? I In high school, I was like a graduated third of my class. I never had to study. Like it just kind of came easy to me. And then when I moved down here and went to UT, it was hard. And everyone was smart. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know anybody down here. And I, I really struggled for a few years down here. And I was involved with a guy that didn't treat me well and didn't really appreciate or respect me. And so when I got my EMT. That was the first time I'd really enjoyed doing something in a long time and that I felt like I was good at something. And and then getting hired and meeting my now fiance, actually having someone that supported me and didn't make me feel dumb or like I had to, my previous relationship, they weren't motivated. They didn't want to do anything. And so having someone instead not holding me back, but pushing me forward and saying, you can do this, you're smart. And it's easier to get motivation to study and do things for something that you really enjoy. I tried to write everything down to keep track of where I had to be when, because otherwise I don't think that I would have. Uh, where, where did you write it down? Initially, I had like a paper calendar, and then the more I progressed, the more I got it on my computer, mm-hmm. so I could sync it to my phone. But I checked that consistently, because there's sometimes I would check it, like, oh, I forgot that I have this test next week, or, you know, and planning yeah. out when I had to study, too, so that I didn't get to the day before the test and I hadn't studied at all. Right. I tried to build in, like, I need to, you know, study this day, this day, and this day kind of thing. You, you scheduled the study yeah. time. Yeah. That's really proactive, and most people don't do it that way. Yeah. 
you know, I would go to work and say, okay, I have to study today. I can't just relax. I have to, in my downtime, read or go over this kind of thing. Because mm-hmm. otherwise I would have, you know, been staying up late. And I don't think that I would have been as successful if I would have tried to do it all last minute, not plan ahead. Especially so you, being so busy, not planning ahead would have really, I would have really gotten behind. So you took care of your sleep. Mm-hmm. You protected your sleep a yeah. little bit. That's big too. I think that's key to everything. And the nice thing is, was, you know, I was able to bid a slow truck. And so I studied at work. And then when I was at home, I was at home and I was right. relaxing there. And I, that was nice having that off time too, so that I didn't get so stressed out about having to study all the time. I tried to study when I was away from home so that when I was home, that was just me time. Mm-hmm. It sounds really key that you had somebody at home that was supportive. Mm-hmm. At a minimum, not destructive and sounds like constructive. Yeah. I had the same experience with somebody. I didn't have to worry about any drama at home. Yeah. Which is huge. That's a big deal. You know, I saw a few classmates go through relationships throughout school and in the past relationship that I was involved in, it was always like, always stressing out if I wasn't where I needed to be or like, you know, in my current relationship, he never freaks out if I like I have to go to this clinical today. I'm sorry I didn't, you know, I you know, I'm going to be gone for 48 hours or mm-hmm. I'm going to be home late and it was never an issue. Like, okay, cool. Like That's awesome. if you need anything, let me know. Like bring you lunch or, you know. That's awesome. Yeah. It was really nice. I'm glad you had that. Yes. Now, we are done. We cover a lot on this podcast, and some episodes are more technical than others. For example, In this episode, I mention recency bias, which is one of many cognitive biases that I expand upon in the show notes at medicmindset.com. Go there if you want to know more. And lastly, if you're enjoying the podcast, leave me a note on an iTunes review or share the show with a friend. I'd appreciate it.